Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Nick Corbishley, journalist, teacher, and author of Scanned, Why Vaccine Passports and Digital IDs Will Mean the End of Privacy and Personal Freedoms. I've got the uh, Kindle version here, and welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, Nick. Thank you very much, Robe. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, your, your work is great. And if I were to write a book on this subject, which for the past two years has been the number one thing I've been obsessing over, uh, I would have written the book that you wrote. Uh, you know, Scanned is fantastic. I highly recommend people get it. And um, I'm obsessed with this because for me, it's like if people remember the video game Doom, the BFG, the big effing gun, uh, or, or, you know, the idea of a doomsday device. For me, this is it. The vaccine passport, which is a social credit system. This is like the doomsday device, which if it installed is like checkmate for uh, humanity. And so, you know, where to begin this story? Could you, you know, start to tell us about uh, your book uh, and uh, your research into this? Okay. I mean, I started writing this book, um, ironically, just after catching COVID in um, September last year. I wrote it in about three and a half months um, because we had an incredibly kind of like tight deadline. Um, because kind of like of the urgency of the moment, the publisher, Chelsea Green, essentially they, they wanted this book to go out because um, they felt that this was kind of like a, a, a vital mission almost. It was like a mission for them. And, and time, was, time was of the essence. And by the time I'd written the first draft, probably about 20% of what I'd written was no longer relevant because everything was changing so fast. Governments were piling on new restrictions or they were changing, they were tweaking them. Uh, when I started writing the book, it was during the Delta wave. And by the time I finished it, Omicron was, was spreading all over the world. Um, so it was, it was a fascinating experience, my first book, and an exceptionally stressful experience and i'm just about recovered from that um and and yes it's it was a a work that i hadn't really expected to do i mean i i started writing articles about the vaccine passports for for the u.s blog i write for naked capitalism going back to february when um the the green pass was first launched in israel which was the first so-called liberal democracy to, to adopt a vaccine passport. And, and then I began kind of like seeing certain things about it that really disturbed me. Um, essentially the kind of like this, like you said, is this kind of um, this digital, some people call it digital gulag. It's the, um, it's this ability to, it's the transferal of total power to government, essentially. And it creates within society this system of total obedience. If you want to have a normal life, if you want to function, if you want to be able to earn a living, if you want to be able to access government buildings, if you want to be able to access your bank account in some cases, like, you know, to go into the bank, um, then, then you need to be fully compliant with the orders of the day. And those orders can change. As we've seen, we've seen governments, you know, shift from, you know, you need to have the two jabs and then you need to have two plus one. 
And they're constantly changing this. And what shocks me is how people don't, people by and large, I mean, there are obviously many, many people who did say, look, I'm not playing this game. Uh, myself included and yourself included. Definitely. But but the majority, I mean, I live in Spain and in Spain, just about 80% of the population, over 80% of the adult population were vaccinated up to two jabs. And people just played the game. People just went along with it. And that is one of the things I think I found most disturbing. And people weren't asking the question now. I'm just going to do this. They've told me I'm going to be able to go back to normality and everything's going to be okay again. But they weren't thinking, well, hang on, this changes my relationship with power. This changes the way I relate to the government. This gives the government, government can actually say tomorrow, you know, we're going to change this and you have to now do this. And there was just no questioning. And I think that that's one of the reasons why, you know, when I was given this, this book offer, this book deal, I was like, yeah, I, I just jumped at it. There was, so much happening. A message from our sponsors. It seems we may be headed for the 1930s all over again. Financial collapse, tyranny, and world war. I've already secured multiple passports, offshore accounts, safe havens, and escaped to the sunnier shores of Mexico. My friend Mikkel Thorup of the Expat Money Show is hosting the Expat Money Summit with 30-plus experts that'll help you reclaim freedom in this fourth turning by moving your life and wealth offshore. Themes include securing your Plan B bug-out location, banking offshore, reducing your tax burden legally, storing precious metals, getting another passport, and more. Protect yourself and secure a new life abroad. Register now for free at expatmoneysummit.com or don't and enjoy surviving on insect protein while stuck in the metaverse. And don't forget to fund geopolitics and empire. You can leave a donation, except on Patreon or PayPal, which have banned us, book a consultation, or become a member. Yeah, this was actually, this still is one of my biggest beefs because the problems is the, the compliance of, of people because it's one of the biggest problems, but also one of the biggest potential solutions is if enough people just don't comply, um, yeah. we win. And, um, you know, I, I like to, I guess to be diplomatic, I, I, I'm calling the pandemic a, a manufactured pandemic. I don't believe by definition it was a pandemic, but I don't think we even at this point anymore need to really talk or look into the nature of the pandemic because what we're talking about is i don't think any of this has to do with health um and and just looking at some of the things you talk about in your book it's it's clear it has nothing to do with health because they they keep shifting the goalposts you know first it's two two shots like you said and then four shots and then six shots and boosters and then they say okay you got to take it annually and then in canada it's like not every nine months now and then they're saying every every six months, it's like, okay, like even disregarding the, the, the pandemics of it's clear that this has nothing to do uh, with health, just uh, endless shots. And then in some countries, like uh, I was living in Kazakhstan and friends there were telling me they have the Ashuk app, you know, their COVID pass and uh, it's it's good for a year. So the, or in Israel w w was where, you know, if you don't get it, it ex expires after a year and then you're back to square one um mm -hmm. but uh the apartheid system that it creates as well you talk about that in your book many people have been talking about this i can't help but see parallels to nazi uh germany i interviewed the jewish historian edwin black he calls it the algorithm ghetto uh we get these mm -hmm. uh, the unvaccinated or second class citizens um you talked about this in your book as well where uh i i did see a spanish newspaper but you referenced an american paper where uh they were calling the unvaccinated rats 
just like Jews were called uh, rats. Uh, uh, unvaccinated have been called um, disease spreaders, just like Jews have been called disease spreaders. Uh, and of course, the health pass. I believe like the Nazis first invented the health pass. And here we are with this COVID health pass. And so uh, y- your thoughts on this uh, apartheid system that they're trying to create? Yeah, I mean, it's the the shadows uh, of the past are clearly here um, in what we've been living through. Um, the, the use of um, Demoguery, the use of um, just this dehumanization, and I think the enthusiasm with which certainly journalists in certain and lots of kind of like you know kind of the professional management classes in in each country were just um, it became perfectly possible to use these kind of words like you said rat which is a horrifying thing to use, a horrifying word to use to describe a person, um, but, but I've heard worse things as well. And, and that kind of like that, that when, when that becomes perfectly acceptable at the upper echelons of society within the kind of like the, the thought leaders, and it just, it trickles down. And so people kind of like begin doing the same. And we lived through that. We weren't vaccinated and we were, I was, my wife and I, we basically knew about three or four other people within our entire social circle um, in Barcelona who were also unvaccinated. And for a period of time, friends of ours just treated us like scum. Um, and they were like, when we got COVID, certain a couple of Mexican friends were just sending us, bombarding us with text messages saying, like, have you got the have you got the sequelas they kept saying? Have you got the sequelas yet? Just desperate for us to be to hear that we were basically knocking on death's door. Um, and they were just, it was like this in this desperate need for that to be the case because that's what they were being told. They were being told if you at that time in kind of like August 2021, they were being told like, you know, if you if you are unvaccinated, you know, you are in serious trouble. Whereas if you're vaccinated, you, you know, you're safe as houses. And it's it, it and that just seeps down. People accept this kind of this kind of talk. I talk, I, I wrote there was this one very, very respected journalist in the UK. Um called um geez i should remember his name andrew something um it will come to me but i mean like he's he's kind of like a um uh, he's been in the business for decades he's he presents programs on bbc he's been an editor at some of the major newspapers you know he's about as you know establishment as you can find within the journalism profession and he published this article which was basically saying more or less saying we are perfectly legitimized to hate the unvaccinated for robbing us of our freedoms. And it's the most staggering, for me, that was the most staggering argument to see because it was the exact opposite. The only section segment of society that was actually standing up for freedoms and had been standing up for freedoms over the last year and a half are the people who have refused to play the game. Uh, whether it's for health reasons or whether it is for ethical, political, philosophical reasons, 
these are the people who said, "Oh, hang on, you know, we don't want we don't want to comply to everything that is demanded of us." Whereas the vaccinated have generally, by and large, played along with everything that's been demanded of them, and that has been where we've seen the the, the gradual but but ongoing erosion of basic freedoms. Yeah, that that uh, ostracism you talk about, I sensed it in in, in Mexico. I, I feel. In Croatia, there's a little bit less of people buying the narrative uh, than, let's say, uh, Mexico. But I, I didn't feel really bad ostracism. But yeah, people, most people that I knew, like yourself, were uh, vaxxed. And then they kind of looked at you like, oh, they didn't say it, but you could kind of read their uh, reaction, their body mm -hmm. language where, oh, you're one of them. You're one of those <laughs> people that don't want to be injected because the government uh, told you to. And, and I keep referencing this point. You know, when I came to Mexico over a decade ago, people were like, everyone says, yeah, the government's corrupt. The narcos work with the government. The government uh, extorts and kills us. And I, I use I use this example. Ayotzinapa, the 43 students, university mm -hmm. students some years ago, where the mm -hmm. federal police, you know, these students were protesting or whatever, and, and the narcos weren't happy. I don't know. And these federal, federal police took these university students, handed them over to cartels, and they were exterminated. So do you think the government cares about our public health? Let's say the Mexican government. No, they could care less. They're literally killing us. And then the mm -hmm. next day they snap their fingers and say, oh, pandemic, public health, emergency. We care for your health now. I don't buy it. And so how do Mexicans, as this example, this cognitive dissonance where one day they're yeah. saying, oh, we don't believe the government. And the next day, all of a sudden they believe the government. It's nuts. And um yeah, it's like Stockholm syndrome. But uh, another point you talk about in your book is the the anti constitutional nature of all of this. In, in almost every country, uh, I know in, in the U.S. is co com completely against the Constitution. These pandemic measures, lockdowns, quarantines, vaccine certificates is, is against the Mexican Constitution. You were citing the EU. I'm an EU citizen, uh, and the EU Charter clearly says you know you can't discriminate you know yeah. related to to medicine to to free mm -hmm. travel. So it literally mm -hmm. says that. Yet they're they're defying their EU charter, um, and in in, in uh, Mexico uh, as well. I think you mentioned in your book that maybe if this was like a really bad pandemic, this would be justified. I, I personally don't think there's any justification for these measures because they're so mm -hmm. un unconstitutional. And I was yeah. telling you, even the governments are not trying to change the constitution to legalize these crazy measures. And yeah. so y your thoughts on, and, and people being fired from work, again, that's completely unconstitutional in countries yeah. all around the world. And so, you know, your, your thoughts uh, on this. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, the EU has been a fundamental piece in everything because the EU um, was the, I think it was the second, you could say, like jurisdiction um, in terms of a democrat, supposedly democratic, liberal um, polity to go ahead with the vaccine passports. And because of its nature, because of the way it's structured, it was able to just from top down, just say like, right, we've got these green passes. You now have to apply them. And even then, I think that they, they kind of said, yeah, but you can't, you know, in the small print, yeah, you're not supposed to discriminate with these. Where since it was obvious it was about discrimination from day one. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, like within, within weeks, governments were, the French government was saying, like, you can't have a coffee outside on a terrace, um, even though by then it was clear as day that you know you you are perfectly safe almost perfectly safe 
your chances of contagion while outdoors is 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 almost non-existent um i mean like there was no logic to it and i think that in the eu a disturbing element is just how little um governments and courts have pushed back against these anti-constitutional uh, moves by the uh, the executive uh, whether at the kind of like block level or whether at the national level i mean like i can only i know of only two examples which was in spain um the there was um a case brought i think it was in andalusia um against the the constitution constitutionality of the the vaccine passports and that actually went to supreme court the supreme court yeah actually this does look rather unconstitutional yeah we're going to block it and then a month later the same court said well actually yeah we're going to overturn it now and it's like what the hell you just so one day it's unconstitutional a month later you decide that constitution doesn't matter um uh, effectively and a similar thing happened in belgium towards the end of last year where the i think it was a court in the valonia valonia region of belgium they basically said that you know they said that this was unconstitutional and i think that again that was just overturned by a, a court that was higher up in the system and it's and this this is about it whereas i mean i think that that's where the us has a certain degree of a lot certainly a lot more a lot more checks and balances there are a lot more blocks on this it's not going to be so it's not it's not as easy in the us to do this sort of thing as it has been in europe i think because in europe um so much of the sovereignty of each country has already been kind of like uh, assert and just basically made to vanish into the ether um i think that trying to block this at a national level is 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 going to be very hard um i think the one thing that is interesting you said that in croatia things seem to be people don't seem to be playing the game so much they don't seem to be complying so much they don't seem to be buying the narrative so much and i think that that is there's something that is happening generally in a lot of places in eastern europe certainly romania and bulgaria have much lower levels of vaccination you know the first series of vaccination i think that i think bulgaria didn't even reach 50% um so i mean like it's really hard to make this happen to make this work when you've got a majority of people who who are already not complying with the most basic uh requirements so i mean like if and and i think that that is that is a thing the more you know in in spain it's if you are 85% of the populace of the adult population who are um vaccinated then you know you're a very small minority and you're much more easy right? it's much easier to to target you to um to kind of like banish you to the fringes um so so yes it's a very it's a very curious how each country is different within europe Yeah and you just mentioned Eastern Europe Europe and and Croatia I think these countries that were closer to historically to totalitarianism you know um they I think maybe it's that historical memory that gives them a a, a, a little more uh skepticism and I think we're a lot of these local and all these different countries like Mexico or US and and Europe uh these elites have captured politicians not just at like you know Trudeau and Mark Rutte of Netherlands and at the top level but uh 
this is not being talked uh, a lot about, but I feel from my view in Mexico that, uh, you know, it, we were talking about AMLO, where AMLO seems to have pushed back. You know, he's one that he can't do everything. And you've got all these interests around him in the administration that have been captured by Big Pharma or whatnot. But um, I think they also go for governors, the state governors and, and mayors at the local level. Mm -hmm. And you can see in Mexico, it's been varied. Like in Mazatlan, uh, the governor just declared obligatory vaccine passport. And then a lawyer uh, helped 500 people get injunctions because it was clearly anti-constitutional. And finally, like after 500 people got injunctions, the shops stopped uh, demanding the vaccine uh, certificate. Um, so I think it's like lawfare. And the governor mm -hmm. where, where I live in Jalisco, he wants to change the state constitution. So it's illegal to mandate the vaccine certificate. But he said he's thinking of, of stuff, you know, to enter or exit the state, uh, you'll need a vaccine certificate. That's an internal Soviet passport. Uh, and so he said, you know, they're thinking about changing the state constitution to make what is illegal legal. So it's absolutely uh, insane. And something you talk about in your book as well is how animal farm this all is, where uh, the elites, the rich and the, the political uh, elites they don't have to do PCR tests or they don't have to do vaccine passports or lockdown. Many cases we've seen. I remember a story in Australia. There was a super wealthy businessman who wanted to come to Australia and they just mm -hmm. they waved them off. You don't have to do lockdown or quarantine. You're OK. But for the rest of us, plebs, uh, you know, if you want to talk about that for a moment. Well, I mean, absolutely. It's it's it's. It's another reason why you would hope that the, the vast majority of the people in, in each country would be like, oh, what the heck is this? This is giving kind of an unfettered power um, to government and elite that we don't trust. It's like you were saying before, we don't trust this elite. that they, they, They've been shown not to be worthy of our trust, yet we're going to go along with a system which gives them kind of like unprecedented power over our lives. And yet they're able to kind of like live by a completely different set of rules, whether it is with the virus, whether it is with the vaccines. In Spain, we had um, the CEO of, uh, I think it was the biggest pharmaceutical company um, in Spain, PharmaMa. He was discovered to have basically got a fraudulent uh, vaccine passport for him and his family. Um, I don't know what sort of punishment he is now facing, but I can imagine it's probably not the sort of punishment I would be facing if I had been caught doing the same thing. Um, but it's, you know, it's the same with climate change. Um, you know, you, you have these Davos events, you have the, you know, every time they come in, they come in on the private jets in order to talk about how we need to raise taxes on commercial flights for the, the plebs. And, and even in the, I mean, in the European Union, it's one of the, for me, it's, again, it's just one of these moments where I, I, I read this article and I just couldn't believe it. It was an article from, uh, I think it was July last year, but I think it's still pertinent. Uh, it was in um, one of the Irish newspapers and it was basically saying that the European Union is going to include, you know, put these kind of like incrementally rising um, duties on uh, commercial fuels for commercial flights. So it's going to get more and more expensive to fly, which is what we're already seeing happen. Um, but at the same time, those duties are not going to apply to the private jet, the, the business and corporate elite fly, and the political elite fly on a regular basis. Um, and despite the fact that those private jets, flying by private jets, is, is many times more polluting than than flying on a on an easy jet or on a Ryanair flight. So I mean, it's it's this total hypocrisy 
And I mean, like, I think we're living in a moment before the pandemic, we were living in a moment where trust in the political elite and resentment towards the business and corporate elite was kind of like at its lowest point. Well, one was at its lowest point, the other one was at its highest point in decades. And, and so the idea of giving these, these people this kind of like unprecedented amount of power, because it, it's, it's a power that, in a sense, it dwarfs the power that totalitarian systems of the past have enjoyed, because it's a power that, that is almost kind of, it's so, so much more subtle and so much more discreet. Um, you don't have to go around beating people and you don't have to go around building necessarily huge prisons to, to, to house them. And you, you just have to you just make them in, become invisible and unable to participate. And we saw that, uh, we've seen that throughout the vaccine passport rollout but, I mean, like, we saw a really good example of this that more or less kind of, like, it, it uh, what's the word? It kind of, like, um, it was proof positive of what my book was arguing. Um, and that's what happened in China a month ago in uh, Henan province, where you had these um, bank depositors, you know, these bank customers who suddenly find that they're no longer able to access their money um, and they are essentially doing what you're not supposed to do in China ever, which is to protest in public against, even if it's against the bank, you're still protesting in public. That's not supposed to happen. Um, so after a few weeks of that, the local authorities basically used the COVID pass to prevent these people from leaving their home or from reaching the city where they wanted to protest. And so this, this, like, this has nothing to do with health. It is a means of control and, and a very, very scary means of control because, because we, can, we can do, you can shout, you can say, look, I've been, I can't live anymore. And like your neighbors, well, I can. And yeah. it's, it's, and it's kind of like that, um, you know, first they came for, for the socialist, but I wasn't a socialist. And that, that is going to play out. We've already seen it play out. You know, first they came for the unvaccinated, but I wasn't vaccinated, so I didn't, I didn't have anything to worry about. And I think that, that that is a very dangerous path to be on. Yeah, for me, this is really the heart uh, of the matter. And I always reference this interview I did because for me, it was so powerful for me on a personal level, my interview with Jewish historian Edwin Black, who talks about you know the nexus between the American eugenicists uh, and the Nazis you know, the Rockefeller Ford Foundation and, 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 and IBM and, and, and who made the Holocaust uh, possible. And it's the same actors today. It's like IBM created the first paper computer to carry out the Holocaust. Well, who's working on the COVID pass? IBM. Uh, you know, the, the Rockefellers were the old eugenicists um, uh, advising Hitler. Who's writing the policy reports today for the pandemic government policies? Rockefeller. It's like it's nuts, and 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 it's 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 in in some ways. I mean, this is another thing: eugenicist, Nazi, and and, and um, you know Malthusian. But this social credit thing. What he said, Edwin Black, is what you were alluding to right now. They've inverted the prison system because they don't have the resources to build out these huge prisons. Mm -hmm. So it's like he says, no one's going to knock on your door. It's not like the Soviet no. Union where the no one's going to knock, no one's going to care. You're going to shout, no one's going to hear you. Um, you can't buy food. So literally, you can just imagine the scenario. You're in your home and you're literally over a few weeks time. You're just going to starve to death and die in your home because 
you can't buy food. Your neighbor won't want to help you because you know this. They track. They're going to start tracking the carbon and the resources and how much you know food each person or family utilizes and energy. And they, they could probably detect if this person's buying uh, more food than they need. Uh, and then, so if your neighbor tries to help you, he's going to get stuck in the algorithm ghetto, right? Exactly. I mean that that is definitely something that I think that's already happening in certain parts, certain of the pilot schemes for the Chinese credit social credit system. Yeah, you don't associate with somebody who already has a black mark against them. Um, this is, I mean, I don't know wh- how and or when this will come kind of like morph into the kind of social credit system. But I mean, like you've had people at Davos, people this year at Davos who were talking about, you know, how they could bring that into the, the climate um, change agenda. And, and they've got the means. The thing is the technology exists. The vaccine passports kind of like they opened the door. They put the, they were a foot in the door. To the digital identity system, which is obviously tied into a social credit system, which is also tied into kind of like the central bank digital currencies that are coming up, coming at us at a rate of knots. Um, and and yeah, that is a the perfect control grid. You know, you can't access your money if you don't do what you're supposed to do. You can't travel if you don't do what you're supposed to do if you don't comply in every way and it's it, it is it is really worrying to see i would argue the apathy and the complacency with which the vast i would say 70 80 percent of the population are still kind of like living under and and you say to people, I mean, what I've noticed over the last few months is that people, maybe if you were saying, if we were saying these things to certain people our age um, a few months ago, they go, yeah, that sounds like conspiracy theory. And now some of them are going to say, ah, yeah, you know, I knew this all along, but what can you do? You can't do anything about it. You just got to live with it. And it's kind of like, just, just live for the moment, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, God, what, would our, what would our grandparents, our great-grandparents have said? who had fought for many of the rights we kind of enjoy today, uh, whether it's in the workers' movement or whether in unions or, or whatever, the political struggles, the feminists who fought for, for women's rights in early 20th century. And it's just like, we're just like the generation where, yeah, whatever, just give me a beer. Well, I've got, I've got to do this, this, and this, so just give me a beer. And it's like that willingness to give up everything for nothing is staggering um and yeah that 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 is one of the things that has most disturbed me i i don't even know how do you again that's like the key if i mean we we can't do anything alone we need this mass of people to do something to yeah. move yeah but they're not moving and it's like yeah i mean that's a, there's no i don't see any other solution like there's no superman no. that's going to come there's no, no, we, don't no, no. Any, we don't have any magical technology that can fight back it's that mass of people it's like, what, what do we do then? I mean, in, in your yeah. view, how do we I mean, react? I think, yeah. I think that, I mean, one thing that I did in my book is like, I got my father to read it. Because my father, like, we, we had um, we had disagreements on the rollout of the vaccines. He was convinced. I mean, like, he was watching BBC on a regular basis and watching these incredibly well-produced documentaries about how 
cutting edge and how brilliant these vaccines were. And I was just reading, I was reading stuff like, you know, proper papers. And I was reading um, well-informed people who were warning about the risks of vaccines. So we had, we had quite a lot of disagreements. So when I published the book, my father was keen to, was keen to read it. And um, he did so. And he was surprisingly, he enjoyed it. He thought it was very interesting and he gave it, he gave a copy to five or six of his friends. So this is somebody kind of like in a small town in the Midlands, in the West Midlands of England. And yeah, I saw like 70, 60, 70 year old uh, people, middle class, upper middle class. And, and they read it and they said, like, we didn't know anything about this. We didn't know anything about this. And, and two of them kind of like bought other copies and sent them to uh, friends in, in Europe, I mean, friends in Germany, um, so that they could read it. And they were like saying, well, we just don't get this information. And the interesting thing, so I think that one of, one of the challenges we have, I think that where we're most likely to get pushback is from people, I would say, over roughly our age and above. Um, and particularly, ironically, particularly people who are kind of like in their 60s and over. Um, because they're kind of like the people who are going to be most left out of the digital, a total digital utopia stroke dystopia. Um, they're going to be, they're already feeling that through kind of like the, the increase, increasing encroachments on the use of, ca the use of cash. Um, and we're already seeing like, you know, in Spain, we actually had kind of like a, uh, pensioners revolution recently against cashless, against uh, the bank's um, closure of branches and things like that. So, I mean, like, this is kind of like a, a demographic that were put through a load of fear um, during the first year, year and a half of the virus. And now they're kind of like in this scenario where, where they don't really know what's happening, but if they can get informed then I think that they would be thinking, what the hell is this kind of world they're trying to build? The problem we have is that the people who normally are kind of like the spearhead or in the front lines of any revolution are kind of like the 20 to 40 somethings. And I would say certainly the generation said the millennials, largely by nature, they are completely on board with the digitization of just about everything. I'm sure there are loads of exceptions. I'm sure there are loads of people who are in their 20s and 30s who are going like, this, this is, doesn't seem right, and are beginning to push back against it. But by and large, they're the people who have kind of like been brought up in a completely digital world. So for them, the idea of just downloading another app, because that's what it is, it's just another app, and just like, you know, basically showing that app and just, you know, um, swiping it across a reader, they've been doing that already. Um, so, I mean, it's just, I think that that is one of our biggest problems. So, like, the youth, the young people, by and large, I mean, uh, I went against the vaccine passport last year, and the average age was about 52, 52, 55, something like that. I could not find anyone under the age of 35. The irony is this was on a Saturday afternoon in the centre of Barcelona, so where you did see the young people with, with, as they came out of the shops, and they, they took out their mobile and started filming us. So I think that said quite a lot about the, the state of affairs.
Yeah, when I was teaching late 2020, 2021, virtually from Mexico to Kazakhstan, and I was asking these students, that, you know, between uh, uh, instruction, like, do you really think it's okay? Because th- at that time in Kazakhstan, you couldn't go into a cafe, uh, a coffee shop to buy coffee without scanning the code that showed your green mm-hmm. uh, status. I'm like, do you think that's okay? And they're like, yeah, I, don't have- I would just ask, I couldn't find one student that said this was not okay. Like, oh yeah, I don't care. It's fine. You just download the app, and I don't see anything wrong with that. It's like, and, and they're, they're coming out of the former Soviet Union. This is Kazakhstan, and yeah. I mean, even even today, I met a Ukrainian. Now I met Gorbachev. I shook hands with him five years ago when I t- took a trip to Moscow, and I'm like, I'm showing the oh, because because we talk about Russia, and I'm like, oh, by the way, I shook hands with the, the last president of the Soviet Union, and and I met a Ukrainian the other the other day, twenty years old. Like, who, who she's like, who's that guy? And I talked to these some of these even <laughs> Kazakh students, like. Who's that guy? I'm like, seriously, like you, you don't know your <laughs> your own uh, history. That's part of the problem. They don't know yeah. the, the history, yeah. where we've been and where we're going. And so you, you talked about, you know, maybe what we need to do to resist. But I also often think about preparing, <laughs> bracing for impact, because I feel, you know, yeah. we could be going into this train is, is running and it may not be stopping uh, anytime soon. And I always bring up like, it's not that I'm complaining or I, I even care. You know, I was taken off of Patreon uh, a year ago and a few months ago, banned from PayPal. People are getting their bank accounts frozen in, in Canada and UK now. Graham Phillips, the British citizen reporting in Ukraine, just got his bank account frozen. And so this is be- beginning to to happen. I personally don't care. Like it, I'll go sell tacos in Mexico uh, on the beach or here, here in Croatia, I'll just become a shepherd. I, I love eating lamb. So I'll just, you know, become a shepherd in, in rural Croatia. Really, I don't, <laughs> I don't care, yeah. but it's like, um, uh, you said they're going to start adding on to the vaccine passport requirements. They're going to link the CBDC. I mean, I'm, I'm already reading about people uh, like religious people, Christians, politicians who just merely by posting a quote from the Bible on Facebook, they're losing their jobs. And, and this happened in Mexico. It's happening in Europe. And so um, that's that social credit system where if you disagree for on social issues, on mm-hmm. medical issues, on uh, war, foreign policy, that digital passport will then shut you off for any number of these reasons. What you were saying before, if they they, uh, they came for, uh, you know, it was a Martin, I forget his name, uh, who came up with that piece years ago. But, I know, it was, uh, uh, it was, it was a pasta um, yeah, beginning yeah. with N. Yeah, with was... an N, I can't remember the last name. But so <laughs> I, I guess my, my point is that I feel that um, in, in in a few years soon i'm going to be financially penalized and people and people like us and you know maybe we'll have our bank accounts frozen not allowed to travel uh get, get uh government services and so uh, a lot of people are thinking about plan b's a lot of people are fleeing to places like mexico or, or even here in the balkans which is like the mexico of the united states of europe and so uh, uh, and basically going rural getting like a farm where you at least have water and food and you can survive uh and even if you're shut out you can still sort of uh, survive as well as forming communities. Uh, a- any thoughts on sort of bracing for impact? It's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think that it's a question that kind of like is occupying my mind more and more on a daily basis. It's like, you know, what can you do? I mean, I live in Spain's second largest city um, and my my wife and I have a plan. I mean, because we're expats living abroad, we have a plan B location. We have two plan B locations. We could, if we wanted to, we could go to the UK tomorrow. I'm not sure if that's a good option. <laughs> I really don't feel much in the way of um, 
positive vibes coming from the UK. I haven't done for, for quite a long time. And the other option is Mexico. And Mexico is, uh, I think Mexico is a place where it's one, I mean, like one advantage of Mexico is that it's, it's quite anarchic. It's quite chaotic. Um, and if you're not living in one of the major cities, I think even if you are living in one of the major cities, you could, you could slip through the gaps very easily. Um, and I would argue that even in Europe, I mean, it's better to be in a place like Spain or Italy than it is to be in a place like Germany or Austria. We've already seen that history has kind of shown that. I mean, it, Franco Spain was not a nice place. It really wasn't a nice place, especially in the first 20 20 years um but compared to hitler's germany um you know it was it was uh, a much nicer place and and the same could be said of italy mussolini i mean something about latin cultures they're just they're not as compliant by nature or as obedient um so so there, there's more likely to be ways of avoiding it but but yeah, I think going, getting away from the cities is clearly a good idea. Um, I'm not sure. The one thing that I'm very interested to know what will happen is um, if all this plays out, where will cryptocurrencies fit into this? And I think that that is, um, I'm not in any means, in any way, an expert on cryptocurrencies. I'm not investing in cryptocurrencies. I don't have any cryptocurrencies, but I mean, I, I would be intrigued to see because I mean, like, if central bank digital currencies do come into effect, it basically means that probably cash is either not going to exist anymore, or it's going to exist, but you're going to basically be penalised for using it. Um, in which case, it's not going to be a very viable. You're going to probably end up losing money at a quite fast rate if you are using cash. So. So how do you avoid that? You know, there's got to be a means of exchange if you are kind of living out of the system. Uh, and that, I imagine that cryptos will play into that, but I'm just not sure how that will play out. Um, but, but yes, I mean, I, I hope we don't move to a barter society. I hope, but there's always that as a possibility. Humans have survived in in that way i mean like cigarettes became a currency at the end of the second world war in certain places and um, there will be a means of exchanging something for something and um, so i'm hoping i mean like, like i said in my book I, I really do hope that this can be averted but as each day goes by and i see number one how easily the media still managed to kind of like dominate the mainstream media managed to dominate the public conversation and to shape the thoughts and the ideas of the vast majority of the people. Um, and as I watch the governments that are supposed to represent us continue to do incredibly dark things that, that are clearly against us, um, then, then yeah, my hope gradually um, diminishes and it's kind of like i mean like right now i wrote an article yesterday which was about how the u.s government is basically planning to share the biometric data of most american citizens as far as i'm aware like i think 270 million american citizens and much of this data has been accumulated 
um, in a, if not an illegal fashion, then in an exceptionally unethical fashion. And they're talking about sharing that with its allied countries in Europe, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and other places in the world. So, so you kind of like getting this, you know, this grid is going across borders and you're seeing, um, and if, if, if you are, so say Croatia is one of the 40 countries that, that benefits, that is part of the visa waiver program in the US, which means that Croatian citizens can go to US without a visa um, for up to 90 days. And if Croatia wants that to continue in the future, it will have to basically provide the US government, the US um, and US agencies with um, with the biometric data of, of Croatian people. So, I mean, it's like, yeah, this is, this is the future happening today. And so the more you see this happening, you more see it happening in total silence, in total radio silence, the more you realize that trying to stop that, unless there is kind of like this, what's happening in the Netherlands, what's happened recently in Canada, unless that does blossom, which, which there are signs it could. I think the closer they get to achieving their goals, the more delicate their position becomes because more people within societies are going to feel the real, the sharp edge of these rules and the new systems taking place. So it's going to get, it's going to get harder. I mean, I think the one thing that gives me a little bit of hope is the fact that far fewer people are up to date on their vaccine um, series or whatever you have, I think in the U S something like 20, 30%, only 20 or 30% of the over, I think it's over 60s have taken the fourth booster or the second booster, the fourth injection, basically. Um, and I've got a feeling in the US that they overreached with this new rule to force, well, not to force, but to authorize the vaccine for six months, children of six months to five years. That was a red line, I think. And once you actually get people beginning to disobey and saying, okay, well, I'm not going to comply with that. And this is parents of young children saying, I'm not going to comply with that. These people have most, mostly probably have taken, have taken the vaccines for themselves. They said, I'm not going to comply with that. And if they realize, oh shit, there's no actual um, consequence of not complying with that then you might actually begin to see a slight change in behavior at a collective basis, a collective, collective level. Um, that is one of my hopes. Yeah, I, I am seeing more uh, people refusing th that I've heard have taken one or two shots yeah. that are refusing to go any further. And you're like the only the second person who I have read. I read your article from Naked Capitalism uh, today that, that mentioned this about how the, the this U, U.S. DHS sharing of biometrics and data with EU. I interviewed Todd Miller uh, on Geopolitics and Empire. I don't know if you've uh, read his book. I highly recommend it. He calls it the border uh, security complex. And okay. this is this is another piece. This is really yeah. another piece to the puzzle that he outlines. Todd Miller. Uh, I forget. I forget the his the name of the book. Empire of Borders or something like that. But he explains how. You've got in the U.S., you know, after 9-11, the Patriot Act, TSA, 
um, this high tech biometric style system for the entry and ex- exit of the borders. You know, now now foreigners going into the U.S. need to give up their social media accounts, and they can just confiscate yeah. your cell phone and laptop and scan and download everything. You know, this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. This kind of, if you think about the big picture, you step back. That you've got the digital passport, and then this global border control system really connects with that. So that if if, if you're you got a bad social credit system, oh well, then you can't enter uh, the country yes. or or leave the country. And so what he talks about, which you alluded to in your article, is how. This is shocking. The U.S. government and TSA and all these agencies, DHS, are financing, uh, advising foreign countries. All these crazy Middle East, Africa, Europe, Latin America, all the foreign countries, Asian countries, they're coming to the U.S. or the U.S. is opening uh, um, offices in these countries to help these countries develop the same systems. So it's like they're literally building out the prison planet. And it's going to be exit entry controls based on your digital passport. The wealthy, they'll be able to, you know, as you were talking about in your book, the animal farm. I mean, the the, the aspect of the animal farm, they'll be able to skirt those restrictions. But the rest of us will be completely uh, screwed. And just on your point of crypto, I'm I'm still on the fence, but I'm still holding to my theory. I'm happy to be proven wrong. And, you know, if if it is the case, but I feel cryptos, Bitcoin was a globalist Trojan Trojan horse. And the purpose of it was to be a bridge for the cbdc's you know get everyone excited with all all the money you make and then uh uh, then ease us into this cashless society because if they just flip from cash to hey we're going to cbdc's people are gonna be like what are you talking about but then they got us all excited with cryptos uh that's kind of easing the way i could be wrong uh you know maybe no no i mean i i've held more or less the same the same opinion over the last 10 years i mean i think that it's a perfect uh, Trojan horse. It's a perfect way of conditioning people to the idea of digital money. Uh, it was also a perfect way of um, diverting funds away from what is real money, which is gold, at a time going back to 2010, 2011, when the central banks began kind of quantitative easing and all this sort of thing. And people are like, going, where am I going to put my money as inflation is probably going to come at some point in the future? Um, so instead of having gold, you had kind of like the, um, or silver, you, you had this competing thing. Um, I mean, it was always bizarre. The fact that the creator has never been known that, that, that smelled a bit fishy to me from day one. Um, but it worked. I mean, like people are certainly, I would say people in the age of 35, 40 are, are kind of like, you know, many of them have acquainted with this world, are invested in this world. And they've also been able to do this incredible kind of, it's just the perfect testing ground. How does it work? What are the things we should avoid? So, I mean, it's, it's interesting that we are now at the same moment that central bank digital currencies are suddenly beginning to kind of like become a reality. And at the moment, there's, I think there's three countries where they're actually a reality. And you've got China where they're kind of like, it's being launched in pilot schemes around 20 odd countries, uh, 20 odd cities. Um, but I mean, like the, that is happening. It's been, that's only in the last, I think about nine months that that's began. And we've seen a massive collapse in, in the crypto sphere. So it's, it's a curious coincidence at the very least. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it is, it is a, a very, the, the whole thing about kind of like outsourcing this world, you know, the digital prison, as you say, I mean, I've been looking at it from a European perspective. 
um, in recent articles that I've done. I mean, like it, the European Commission is financing loads of um, these rollouts of digital um, digital identity programs um, for countries that provide a lot of migrants send a lot of migrants or from where migrants come to the EU um, and these are not the nicest of governments. So I mean you're effectively giving governments with pretty egregious human rights records much greater powers to surveil and to control their populations. It's it's extremely dark. And again going back, who is who is financing this? I mean like you've got the French government is financing the, much of these, many of these uh, digital identity programs in Africa. So, I mean, the, the the British government, so the two former colonial powers, the main colonial powers of Africa in the kind of like 19th, 20th centuries are now kind of like, you know, they, they are helping to build this new form of kind of neo-colonial control. And, and these African countries, they're just desperate for money especially after COVID-19. And they have virtually zero independence. Their only other alternative, you know, their only other option is, is China and Russia, which is where we're beginning to see this kind of, this race among um, these two powers to kind of like, to control resources in, 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 on the continent. And the same thing I think is happening in Latin America to a certain extent. So, I mean, China and Russia are definitely coming into Latin America in a massive way. And the US, unfortunately, I mean, it's, it's horrible to watch, but the US is just responding to this with like, okay, we just need to go back to our old ways and, and start getting the military out there. Um, I mean, it's not happened yet, but they're beginning to use a harder and harder approach against kind of like Chinese incursions into its, its, its backyard, so-called. Yeah, I mean, I just read Cuba is now accepting uh, Russian Mir cards, which mm -hmm. is like a Russian MasterCard visa. Um, China is building uh, the, in Mexico; they're building out uh, trains and, and and railroads, and a lot of these trains are Chinese. Uh, and so, yeah, perfect example. And and what you mentioned about gold uh, just yesterday or the day before, the renowned economist Richard Werner was saying exactly what you said about how gold. Uh, crypto stole the thunder of gold um and he was kind of alluding to the same thing we're talking about that it's um that that was his purpose and how gold has not moved as you know crypto took the took the uh money you know the, the money should that should have gone into gold and moved gold has gone um into crypto and maybe the, the elites are buying gold but he's alluding to the point where crypto would at some point it's going to crash and gold yeah. will probably uh, go up, so you know maybe you want to be buying gold. And uh, uh, any final, <laughs> any final uh, thoughts then uh, for us? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is a uh, is an interesting thought. I mean, like the gold is probably going to go up quite significantly because, as J.P. Morgan, you know, said well over a hundred years ago, you know, the real money, the real money is gold, um, but. We've managed to convince a whole generation that bits on a screen, computer bits are are as good as, if not better, uh, which is some 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 accomplishment. Um, I think that final remarks. I mean, I, I'm I'm intrigued to know where the best place because you're you're kind of like an expat. You've lived 
you've lived outside your country. And so you are American of birth, Croatian and descent, uh, yeah, uh, uh, who's lived in Mexico for how long were you in Mexico? A decade, but I'm also naturalized, but I'm a proud Mexican you're, citizen. You're, so. you're a proud naturalized Mexican citizen. Um, and I've been living in Barcelona for 20 years. Um, and my wife is Mexican. And it's, it is the idea, like, where do you go? Um, because I think a lot of people, I, I speak to people who have never lived abroad. And yet they're kind of going, I don't want to be in my country anymore. Where should I go? And it is a question, where would you recommend? I mean, like you're, you're in Croatia, so you've got the advantage that you've got, um, you've got family, you've got friends, you've got kind of like a bedrock there, and you've got, uh, you, you said to me that you were close to you, the, um, rural. the rural, rural area where you can, you can live out a very primitive, simple life without um, algorithms and the like. Uh, would you recommend anywhere else? I mean, I, I would turn just, my remarks into a question. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I would just recommend uh, uh, the principles of. You just mentioned some of them. Like uh, people have asked me of just picking up and like moving to Russia or, or somewhere, and it's like I think you need to have some community or network. Like yeah. I, I'm lucky in the sense just how my life has been, where I can move between United States or Mexico or. Croatia, where I've got places to live or pe people that I know and speak the language, but I, I personally wouldn't feel comfortable in this moment now going to a country completely foreign to me where yeah. I don't know anyone. So I think, you know, and, and all the people that I talk to would say community, like having some, somebody, you know, uh, the, the, the size, I guess for now doesn't matter, but having some sort of network or community wherever you go, but also going to a place that's less developed, you know, like Latin America, right? Mexico, people mm -hmm. are looking at Uruguay. Uh, Paraguay, uh, Mexico is a good option as well. So places that are, let's say, more backward or developing where it's harder in the near term to implement these systems, countries that are poorer, that don't have the resources, at least for now, to implement these systems. But as you mentioned in your book, they'll get the resources from the World Bank and IMF. Oh, yes. here, 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 take this money, build these systems. All right. <laughs> so in one sense, that's not going to be uh, a big deal because you know Davos is going to provide them the funds to do that. But yeah, play, and places that are more rural, Croatia in, ge as in general is pretty much r rural. Uh, I mean, it's not very yeah. four million people. I mean, that's the size of a city in many countries. So mm -hmm. yeah, just just going as you said before, get out of big cities, go to rural areas. If you know the language, it's better. If you can learn it quickly, uh, where you know somebody, where you can also work. Um, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know what else. <laughs> To say. I, I think that I, I agree completely. I mean, I think that the the I think it's important to know somebody, at least somebody, if you're going to go or to the other side of the world and set up a new life in the midst of the kind of turmoil that we are now living through at a global level. I mean, I think that it it, it is it's probably better to stay where you are if you've got friends, family, and the bedrock. Because community, I think, is number one. It comes before everything else. If you if you've got people that you can count upon, um, then I think that, that that is number one. But but I agree completely. I mean, Mexico. My experience with Mexico is that you have every one of the worlds: the first world, the second world, and the third world. 
in one place. And, you know, you go to Mexico City, you will see wealth you will not see in Europe. And you will see poverty that you will not see in Europe as well. You will see every little possible aspect. And I cannot see how they're going to be able to set up with the same kind of efficiency and the same kind of like, um, what's the word, prevalence, you know, that there's just going to be so many chinks, I think, in the armor there. There are going to be gaps that you can fall through into, um, which which are going to be harder to find, I think, in, in many parts of Europe, certainly in Western Europe. But... But yeah, I would, I would say that, that those are the best options. Yeah. But in the meantime, we've got to get the word out and we've got to get people, I think we've got to get people like aware of this before because I still think that there is, there is still a possibility. I've not fallen kind of like um, headfirst into total fatalism yet. I think I'm yeah. like halfway there. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that's why, why I'm doing what I'm doing, just mm-hmm. fight, fighting still. But as soon as, you know, it seems like the, the light is fading and things are getting dark, uh, I'm out of here uh, on some Croatian yeah. island or rural part of uh, Mexico. And I like how you said you can find everything in Mexico. I mean, I used to have students. Uh, I was driving an old 2001 uh, Honda CRV uh, when I was in Mexico, and they, the students called it a mama, mama mobile. And I had, you know, students who were dri- driving Lamborghinis, and uh, uh-huh. one, one student graduated, and the parent bought uh, her. Uh, a military Humvee, not like the commercial Humvees, but like a real Hummer. It's wow. like, look at the, the, what they're driving. And I'm, you know, look at me. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, you've got this wealth, insane wealth uh, in Mexico, as well as the, uh, the poverty. And yeah, again, I recommend, uh, I don't know if people can see it uh, on my Kindle. Yeah, you can see the cover. Uh, scan why vaccine passports and digital IDs will mean the end of privacy and personal freedom. Uh, I highly recommend to get the book physical or uh digital and uh where's the best place to find you on the internet um you can find me on twitter um nick corbishley my handle and you can find me in my 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 blog which is nickcorbishley.com all right fantastic uh conversation keep up the great work and thank you for being on geopolitics empire thank you for having me it's been a it's been a pleasure I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation 
purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.